When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're fortunate to have a special guest host, Jay Garfinkel, with us today. Hi, Jay. Well, thank you for inviting me. Nice to be here. We are honored to welcome Emmanuel Navon to the podcast to talk about his new book, The Star and the Scepter, A Diplomatic History of Israel. Emmanuel Navon is an international relations expert who has published dozens of articles and books, including From Israel with Hope and The Victory of Zionism, Reclaiming the Narrative about Israel's Domestic, Regional, and International Challenge. Emmanuel Navon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the basics. Why do you think diplomacy is still important in this age of instant communications and direct conversation? Because it needs to be handled by uh, professionals. I think we see it today. Uh, we see the main, main issues of international relations today, whether it is Iran's uh, nuclear program or the very complicated relations between the United States and uh, China. Uh, this cannot be handled on uh, social media or WhatsApp. Uh, I think the social media create a false impression that you no longer need uh, professional diplomacy uh, among states, uh, but this is a mistake. Uh, we still need uh, professionals to handle the very complicated relations between states that are often rivals, uh, and this cannot be uh, handled uh, uh, with direct communication only among heads of states and definitely not on social media. Why did you start the book with a chapter on the Hebrew Bible? That was a surprise. Yes, because I I think uh, it would be uh, impossible, in my opinion, to understand how the the Jews uh, perceived themselves and their relation with other nations without understanding the document which is at the end at the core of uh, Jewish uh, identity uh, and self-perceived uh, historical role. I think the, the, the Hebrew Bible uh, continues to shape uh, the way Jews see themselves and uh, one cannot understand expressions such as a people that dwells alone or uh, the struggle against uh, Amalek or even the concept of Messiah without understanding um, the Hebrew Bible. So I thought that the first thing to do when writing a book about the uh, diplomatic history of Israel and of the Jewish people was to take a look 
into what the Bible has to say about the relation between the Jews and the nations. Can you give us a small example of one of the diplomatic challenges faced by the biblical Israelites? So there are many examples that I give in my uh, in my book, uh, both in the uh, in in the Torah, uh, in the uh, uh, Pentateuch, but also uh, in the prophets. Uh, I think among the uh, examples that I give in my book is that of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, which faced uh, one of the worst uh, diplomatic crises uh, of his time. Uh, before the uh, destruction of the uh, first temple in the 6th century uh, before the Common Era. And uh, Jeremiah handles very complicated issues of uh, political uh, realism uh, versus faith. Uh, Is the acceptation of uh, fate uh, an act of faith or the opposite? Uh, And I think that Jeremiah had to face this very complicated question, which you can see repeating itself throughout Jewish history, what should the Jews do when conquered uh, by a foreign nation? Now, what's interesting in the, uh, I would say, the theology of uh, Jeremiah is that instead of the classical dichotomy between faith and political realism, he, in fact, uh, creates uh, a unique theology which uh, claims at the time that accepting faith and accepting and bowing to political realism is in fact an act of faith, because he claims, of course, that the Jewish people is being punished uh, for not being faithful to the Sinai convent and therefore should accept uh, the conquest of Jerusalem until it deserves to be independent again. And I think this uh, message, uh, this controversial message, uh, is probably key also to understand uh, the uh, survival of the Jewish people throughout history since antiquity. This unique survival uh, might be explained by the fact that historically the Jews always perceived their drawbacks and their historical defeats as a well-deserved punishment for their misbehavior, which was supposed to be followed by redemption and a better future. And I think that this unique uh, eschatology uh, is probably key to understanding uh, Jewish survival, which is also another reason why I thought uh, it was necessary uh, to look into the Hebrew Bible in order to understand the Jewish mentality and how Jews have been handling their relations with other nations throughout history. All right. That's, that sets us up very clearly for what follows. If we just fast forward uh, from biblical times to the 19th century, uh, as you just said, certain ideas achieve prominence at certain times in history, uh, as the one Jeremiah promulgated. What do you think encouraged the idea of Jewish national renaissance in the 19th century? So there are many causes, but of course, I think that ultimately the feeling uh, that the, uh, both the uh, promises, which I explained in my book, both the uh, promises of, the, of messianism and, uh, and the enlightenment uh, failed to uh, deliver. Uh, the fact that uh, you had many self-proclaimed uh, messiahs uh, in the uh, 16th and 17th century, uh, the most uh, famous one, of course, being uh, Shabtai Tzvi, uh, and that this promise of uh, a Messiah would just show up and redeem the Jewish people uh, really turned to be a flop after the uh, Shabtai Tzvi uh, embarrassment. 
But I think also the, the fact that the Enlightenment itself uh, did not deliver in the sense, of course, the Enlightenment delivered in, in terms of uh, granting Jews in Western countries uh, equal civil rights. But it did not deliver in the fact that, especially in France, uh, Jews were presented with some kind of uh, an unwritten uh, contract, uh, which is that they would uh, renounce the uh, national aspect of their identity, only keep the religious one, and become part of the French nation. Uh, this uh, kind of demand was made very clearly uh, both during the debate at the French National Assembly by a, a, a French uh, member of the parliament, uh, Stanislas de Clermont-Tonnerre, who famously said, who famously said uh, the Jews should be granted everything as individuals and nothing as a nation or as a people. Uh, this demand was also made by uh, Napoleon Bonaparte uh, when he convened the Grand, Grand Sanhedrin, the Great Sanhedrin, in 1806 to basically uh, demand from uh, uh, France's uh, top rabbis uh, to make it very clear uh, that the Jews had ceased to be a nation and were only now a religion and that Paris was the new uh, Jerusalem. Now, most Jews went along. Uh, they accepted that deal. Uh, and that deal was broken basically with the Dreyfus affair because uh, Alfred Dreyfus had uh, embraced the uh, French nation. He had even become a, an officer in the French army, and yet uh, he was wrongly accused uh, as a Jew. And even though the Jews had fulfilled their part of the contract, of this unwritten contract, uh, it was broken by uh, uh, the French uh, Third Republic, the most uh, liberal and enlightened regime in uh, Western Europe at the time. And I think that's what brought to the Herzl. Uh, to come to the conclusion uh, that if uh, the Enlightenment uh, did not keep it, its promises, then uh, the Jews uh, had to become a, a nation again, uh, like everybody else. Uh, and uh, it is not a coincidence that he wrote uh, the Judenstadt of all places in Paris. Emmanuel, let's turn to the 20th century. Great Britain had not yet won the First World War and occupied the Ottoman territory in the Middle East. And yet, it issued a very interesting but strange diplomatic declaration, not to another nation, but to a people, of its intention to create a homeland for the Jewish people. What's the historical and diplomatic significance of the Balfour Declaration? So, if uh, I, I explain in my book uh, that if um, the Balfour Declaration uh, was published today, uh, it would be decried on the social media uh, as uh, anti-Semitic. Why am I saying this? Because Balfour himself said, we need to issue this uh, document in order to make sure that Russia stays in the war and that America joins it. We're talking about 1917. Uh, the First World War has been raging for three years. Uh, Russia is collapsing economically, about to leave uh, uh, to abandon the Eastern Front and to uh, quit the war. Uh, it's not clear yet in the United States is going to join. And Balfour is saying basically that, you know, we all know the influence of the Jews in uh, Moscow and Washington, this old myth that, you know, the uh, protocols of the elders of Zion, they're so influential, right, uh, in, uh, in those two capitals. And uh, he also claims, uh, wrongly, by the way, that most Jews are Zionists, which was far from being the case. And he says... Very clearly, we need to issue this declaration uh, in order to make sure that the, the Jews convinced both Moscow to stay in the war and Washington to join. Uh, so it was very clearly a document meant to uh, uh, buy the goodwill of the Jews 
uh, attributing to them uh, uh, formidable powers, which of course they didn't have, definitely not in Russia, where they were oppressed uh, and uh, uh, and uh, were not didn't enjoy the basic rights that Jews in, enjoyed in, in in Western Europe. And um, both uh, Britain and France were fighting over the Middle East. By the way, uh, Balfour not only issued his declaration because he thought that this would convince. Russia to stay in the war and Washington to join it, but also because he was competing against France uh, about the Middle East. Uh, and he said, there's no way we're going to let uh, France, which is a secular republic, uh, a secular and uh, an atheist republic, uh, rule, over the holy, rule over the Holy Land. And, uh, and the fact that uh, you know, England was uh, an Anglican country, that the head of state is both, as we know, uh, head of the Anglican church. It's also one of the reasons why the British uh, decided to issue the Balfour Declaration to claim property over the Holy Land and not let it in the hands of what it called at the time uh, secular and uh, and uh, agnostic France. One of the interesting points uh, your book makes is that diplomacy, its success and failure, occur when the unexpected happens. I thought that was a very interesting insight you had. One of the examples you give is an unexpected ally, Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union, who voted strangely to establish the State of Israel. What was the calculation behind his UN vote of 1947? So Joseph Stalin was very clearly a man of uh, realpolitik and political uh, realism. Uh, he was not uh, an ideologue. He had no problem signing an agreement with Hitler the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact in August uh, 1939, and then ally himself uh, with the West against uh, Germany. Um, and during the war, by the way, uh, after Germany invaded uh, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, his uh, speeches were very firstly nationalist. Uh, he spoke in the name uh, of uh, the great uh, nation of, the, of Russian history. Uh, he even referred uh, to... Uh, uh, figures of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. And this was the leader of uh, the Russian Communist Party, right? Uh, so my point here is that uh, Stalin uh, handled uh, Russia's foreign policy in a very realistic and even cynical uh, manner. Uh, and this is also how he handled uh, Zionism. Uh, Zionism uh, uh, was uh, incompatible with Marxism and socialism because both uh, Zionism and Marxism-Leninism uh, offered two competing solutions, so to speak, to what was called at the time, quote-unquote, the Jewish problem or the Jewish question. Uh, the solution of Zionism was uh, nationalism, that the Jews should be uh, able to build a nation-state like everybody else. The solution, so to speak, of socialism was that eventually Marxism uh, was going to erase uh, national and religious identities, uh, and therefore, uh, in the final struggle of the classes, between the classes, uh, nationalities and religions was, would anyways uh, be erased and the Jews would be part of it. So obviously, since uh, the Soviet Union was home to about 3 million Jews, uh, the idea of Jewish nationalism came into, uh, into uh, competition uh, with, uh, with uh, socialism in, in Russia. Uh, so ideologically, Joseph Stalin had absolutely no reason in the world for supporting a national movement uh, that uh, undermined uh, the very ideology uh, of the Soviet Union. And then he supported it because, as I said, he was first and foremost a man of realpolitik. And his main objective uh, 
as we know today from uh, the archives uh, from the Soviet Union, was to drive out uh, Great Britain uh, from the Middle East. Uh, and for him, uh, uh, voting in favor of partition of British Palestine at the UN, recognizing Israel and even arming Israel via Czechoslovakia in 1948, was necessary to help drive out the British uh, from the uh, Middle East. And uh, his support for Israel, of course, did not last for very long, but it served his interest uh, in 48 uh, to help and drive out uh, the British uh, from a region uh, on which, in which he had uh, ambitions, like everywhere else in the world, uh, the Soviet Union being, in essence, an imperialistic uh, power. And speaking of partition, uh, why do you believe that the Arab rejection of partition, or any compromise at all, actually, uh, actually helped the Zionist cause? Because it was perceived as uh, un um, unreasonable uh, at the UN and um, in the European chancelleries. I mean, the Arabs had just been granted many new states and kingdoms uh, throughout uh, the Middle East. Don't forget that at the time, back then, uh, the Arabs were perceived as one nation. Uh, it just happened that this nation uh, was divided into different uh, mandates that had been established by the British and the French after World War I. And this Arab nation had been granted uh, Syria, Lebanon, uh, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, uh, but also uh, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. And, and the idea that... Uh, the, in, in that region, the Jews would not be allowed to be granted any territory whatsoever uh, seemed completely unreasonable. And uh, it actually confirmed the, uh, the position of many at the UN that if the Arabs were, so, were being so inflexible about recognizing any right of the Jews to national self-determination anywhere, uh, that actually made the, the case of the Jews and of the Zionists uh, even stronger. Um, diplomacy makes very strange bedfellows. I wanted to follow up with, uh, with the chapter you wrote uh, about the Suez Canal, where Britain, uh, the former occupying power of Mandate Palestine, France, which became a, a friend at the beginning of the state, and Israel all became allies uh, in the 1956 Suez War against Egypt over the nationalization of the Suez Canal. But opposed to Israel, interestingly, was the American president, Eisenhower, who threatened Israel's very existence if they wouldn't withdraw uh, back to its lines. Would it be fair to say, and, and I'm trying to think of this as being fair to Eisenhower, that he was the first in a successive line of American presidents whose foreign policy interests were aligned with Arab states? So Eisenhower uh, came to power uh, in 1953, uh, a detriment to, uh, to stop Soviet influence uh, in the world uh, in general, in the Middle East in particular. Uh, he had a policy of uh, containment vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Soviet Union. This was the height of the Cold War. And uh, his uh, outlook and, that of, uh, and the outlook of many of his advisors and also of his uh, Secretary of State at the time, John Foster Dulles, uh, was that um, it was really important for the United States to make sure that no Arab countries uh, would be pushed into the arms of the uh, Soviet Union. And as far as the Middle East was concerned, that meant 
convincing the Arab world that the United States really had nothing to do with Israel, which at the time was true, by the way. But the very fact that uh, his uh, predecessor, President Harry Truman, uh, had recognized uh, Israel uh, in 1948 uh, was considered by many in the State Department as a step that had alienated uh, the Arab states. In fact, Truman had made this decision against the uh, stance, the position uh, of most of the establishment in Washington, D.C., especially the State Department. So the Eisenhower administration went out of its way to uh, convince the Arab world that uh, the U.S. had nothing to do with Israel, and indeed there was a a U.S. embargo, a military embargo uh, on Israel. His purpose at the time, as I said, uh, was not to lose uh, more Arab states to the uh, Soviet Union. So I wouldn't say necessarily that he was the first uh, U.S. president who had a pro-Arab policy. He just conducted uh, U.S. foreign policy based on what he perceived as the U.S. national interest. And in the mid-1950s, as far as he was concerned, that meant uh, uh, making sure that no countries uh, would cross the lines towards the Soviet Union. And in the Middle East, the only way to do this, in his view, uh, was to convince the Arab world that the U.S. really uh, had nothing to do with Israel. Actually, that was a failure because Egypt uh, was very much aligned with Russia. But I want to skip ahead for a second. Uh, Your book revealed something which I had never heard or read before, and that was interesting to me, that the Iran-Israel connection uh, existed post-Islamic revolution in 1979. Israel, you say, was selling weapons to Iran to help them defeat Iraq. What happened that turned useful, if albeit a secret relationship, into one of their ambition to wipe Israel off the map? So when Iran became a, uh, an Islamic Republic in 1979, uh, it was uh, first a, a huge blow to Israel because before the uh, Islamic Revolution, uh, Iran and Israel had been allies, no less than allies. Iran was uh, uh, the first, uh, the biggest supplier of oil, Israel's biggest supplier of oil, uh, part of the Iranian army and the personal uh, god of the Shah was owned by uh, Israel. Uh, you had direct flights between Tehran and Tel Aviv and the whole uh, Israeli community in Tehran. So obviously, in that sense, the uh, 1979 Islamic Revolution uh, was a huge blow, which led to the uh, cancellation and to the end of diplomatic relations between the two countries. And yet, despite the uh, rhetoric of the new Iranian regime of the U.S. being the great Satan and Israel the small Satan, uh, at the end of the day, And behind this rhetoric, there was also a war between Iraq and Iran that erupted uh, in 1980. And uh, as we remember, uh, Menachem Begin, Israel's prime minister, had quipped at the time uh, regarding this war between Iran and Iraq, quote-unquote, I wish the best of luck to both sides. But the truth of the matter is that Israel actually wished better luck to Iran secretly. Why? Because, first of all, nobody at the time really knew what the Islamic regime would look like. Uh, don't forget that both uh, the United States and France had allowed Khomeini uh, to fly back to Tehran, and uh, they didn't expect his regime to turn into a radical Islamic republic. Uh, And as far as Israel was concerned, it's not only because Israel was unsure about what the Iranian regime would look like, but for Israel, the biggest uh, military threat was Iraq, the biggest army in the Middle East, which had uh, taken part to wars between Israel uh, in the past. Uh, And therefore, Uh, Israel uh, continued to have a quiet military relationship with Iran 
uh, during uh, the war uh, with Iraq. And that secret relation was uh, revealed, in fact, with the uh, Iron Contra scandal uh, in 1986. Uh, it did end eventually with the end of the war between Iran and Iraq uh, when, um, in 1988, but also because uh, after the war with Iraq, uh, Iran renewed its uh, nuclear program, uh, which had been suspended uh, during the war uh, with Iraq and upgraded its, uh, not only its rhetoric against Israel, but also its uh, actions against Israel. Uh, such as the terrorist uh, activities against uh, Israelis and Jews around the world. Uh, one of the most famous being, of course, the uh, bombing uh, of the Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires in 1994. Secrecy seems to be more the rule than the exception in the world of diplomacy, Emmanuel. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, there were also secret talks, a back channel, and unofficial talks that resulted in the Oslo Accords and the ultimately very disappointing and bloody peace process. Why did that process fail to make peace between Israel and the Palestinians? Well, I claim in my book that the underlying reason uh, was that there was a quid pro quo between Israel uh, and the PLO. Um, the, uh, the PLO uh, had gained uh, some, kind of, uh, some kind of recognition uh, from the uh, United States uh, in the late 1980s, uh, especially uh, with the outbreak uh, of the First Intifada in December of 1987 and the dramatic decision of King Hussein to uh, disconnect himself from the West Bank. Don't forget that uh, the West Bank had been annexed by uh, Jordan in uh, 1950, and the salaries were still paid uh, by uh, the Hashemite Kingdom. And in 1988, by fear that the Intifada would spread from the West Bank to his kingdom, uh, King Hussein basically had declared that he would severe any ties with the West Bank, which created a political void in the historical struggle between the King of Jordan and uh, Yasser Arafat, the head of the PLO, which had been going on for decades. And so this uh, created, as I said, a political void. So Arafat did gain some kind of legitimacy in uh, Washington, D.C., especially after he declared in an ambiguous manner that he recognized he was willing to recognize Israel and the U.N. Uh, Security Council Resolution 242. And uh, a dialogue started between Arafat and, uh, and Washington. But then Arafat shot himself in the foot uh, with the first uh, Gulf War in 1991 by supporting uh, Saddam Hussein. So not only was he, was he written off uh, by the U.S., but he also lost his source, his major source of funding from the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia, which had been threatened themselves by uh, Saddam Hussein. And so he found himself uh, economically bankrupt uh, and politically isolated in Tunis. Uh, and don't forget that in addition, um, because of the Madrid uh, peace process, uh, many countries were now recognizing Israel, establishing diplomatic relations with Israel. You also had the massive immigration of Soviet Jews uh, to Israel. And so Arafat realized that the clock was ticking against him. And so when the, uh, the peace negotiations between uh, Israel and the Palestinians uh, didn't go anywhere in the framework of the Madrid peace process, which had been moved to Washington, and secret talks and a secret channel had been opened between Israeli academics 
and the PLO in, uh, in Oslo. Uh, Arafat uh, showed himself extremely flexible in this uh, secret channel because he had nothing to lose. Uh, he uh, basically, he had nothing to lose. Uh, he, he was willing to sign anything that Israel uh, presented to him. And he did. But the problem is that he didn't do it uh, as Dennis Rose, Dennis Rose uh, would let her write. Uh, this was not a transformation. It was a transaction. Uh, in other words, Arafat only signed an agreement uh, to salvage himself from diplomatic isolation and economic bankruptcy, with, but with no intention whatsoever of actually reaching a, uh, a historical agreement with Israel. And he actually said so himself. Uh, in a uh, recorded speech he didn't know it was recorded in Johannesburg uh, in June 1994, where he compared the Oslo agreements to the Pact of Chudabiyah uh, between the Prophet Muhammad and the and, uh, Chuda, and uh, Chudabiyah uh, uh, people in Mecca in the 7th century, which was a temporary agreement signed in a position of weakness, only to be uh, ripped and then uh, violated to, uh, to defeat the enemy. And he said so very clearly. And so when time came for Making actually uh, making actual compromise and decisions, uh, he basically dithered and uh, and refused to uh, to make historical compromises. So it doesn't mean, of course, that Israel was faultless during the Oslo process. But I do claim uh, very clearly in my book uh, that at the end of the day, uh, Arafat made a tactical decision to save himself in 1993 with no intention whatsoever of reaching an actual historical compromise uh, with Israel. It's a very religious region of the world. What role do you think religion does and should play in diplomacy? So first of all, it does play a role uh, because, as you said yourself, uh, the Middle East is a religious uh, region. Uh, But I think that precisely because most people, many people uh, in the Middle East uh, are uh, religious, um, it's important to, first of all, to recognize this fact. Uh, to understand it, to also understand the uh, uh, theological divide between the Shias and the Sunnis uh, among uh, among Muslims, uh, the difference, of course, in a country such as Lebanon between uh, the different sects and the, the Christians and the Muslims, uh, but it's also, I think, important to um, uh, to speak the actual language uh, of religion. What do I mean by that? Uh, what I mean by that is that uh, for many years, and we saw it during the uh, Oslo process, uh, religion was uh, manipulated by some to try and deny the very rights uh, of others. Arafat, whom we just spoke about, uh, did this a lot, uh, claiming, for example, during the uh, Camp David summit uh, that there had never been a, a Jewish temple in Jerusalem and therefore that the Jews should not ha- shouldn't have any rights over the Temple Mount. Uh, but this was a manipulation because historically, in fact, uh, Islam uh, always recognized the uh, connection of the Jews to uh, Jerusalem, uh, starting with the very name, uh, original name of Jerusalem in Arabic, in Arabic, uh, Bayt al-Makadis, which is the Arabic transliteration of Bet al-Mikdash, the temple in Hebrew. Uh, all the fact that uh, I show this in my book, uh, uh, prospects from the uh, uh, from the Waqf in the 1920s under the British mandate, described for tourists the Temple Mount as being the former site of the Temple uh, of Solomon. Uh, so I show in my book that traditionally Islam and the Arabs used to recognize the uh, historical connection between the Jews and Jerusalem, which was only which was only denied recently uh, by the by the PLO 
the ultimate example being, of course, Arafat denying the very existence of a temple at the Camp David summit. And what we do see today, in fact, with the, uh, uh, the Abram Accords, for example, uh, which are called Abram Accords for a reason, uh, is a recognition among Mus many Muslims of going back to the actual uh, uh, sources of Islam and, and recognizing uh, the Jew, that the Jews are part of the region, that they have a historical connection to it. It doesn't mean that we're going to agree on everything, but I mean that precisely because the Middle East, as you said uh, correctly, is a very religious uh, region, it is important to be faithful uh, to what text and, and tradition actually have to, to say and not uh, manipulate them uh, for political purposes. I wanted uh, you to share your insights, if you would, of uh, after reading the whole book, but uh, wanted you to speculate or, or to frame for the audience what happens when the prime minister is also a foreign minister, for example, under Bibi Netanyahu? How does that shape uh, Israelis' diplomatic initiatives? Well, first of all, uh, the fact that Netanyahu held a foreign ministry portfolio for about four years uh, was just a confirmation of uh, Henry Kissinger's famous statement that Israel does not have a foreign policy, only has domestic politics. It was only for domestic politics, uh, for reasons of domestic politics, that Netanyahu decided to hold on uh, the foreign ministry uh, portfolio. Uh, and I think that um, in that case, uh, even though Netanyahu uh, in many ways was, was very successful in, uh, in foreign policy, uh, especially in uh, achieving the uh, Abraham Accords and in strengthening Israel's relation with uh, Africa, Latin America, and coordinating Israel moves, Israel's move in, in Syria with, with Russia. But on the other hand, uh, the fact that he weakened the uh, foreign ministry, uh, in my opinion, was a mistake because he ended up handling Israel's foreign relations almost exclusively uh, with the National Security uh, Council, and the Mossad uh, cutting down on the foreign ministry. And I think this was a mistake because at the end of the day, in order to implement a successful foreign policy, uh, it's not enough to have photo ops and a foreign minister, foreign minister or prime minister traveling around the world. You also need on the ground a whole infrastructure uh, to turn uh, vision into actual policy. Uh, and you need the foreign ministry to have the means uh, to implement its policy, and this uh, wasn't the case uh, in the past uh, in the past few years. So, uh, as I said, I think uh, it's better to have a foreign minister uh, having a full time job. I think being a foreign a prime minister of Israel is really a, a full time job, uh, and uh, and letting the foreign minister uh, handle Israel's uh, foreign policy uh, with the uh, very professional diplomats that uh, Israel's foreign uh, ministry uh, has. Well, I agree with you. Uh, being prime minister is more than a full-time job. Uh, finally, Emmanuel, what are the biggest diplomatic challenges facing Israel today? So I think that uh, if we look today, um, besides Israel's uh, uh, diplomatic uh, achievements and successes in recent years, um, one of the main uh, challenges today uh, is, of course, uh, we're all aware of it, uh, the Iranian uh, challenge and how to handle uh, a country obsessed with Israel for ideological and uh, theological uh, reasons. And uh, I think just today or yesterday, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, expressed uh, 
fact that the U.S. no longer expected uh, was uh, to to sign an agreement with a new agreement with uh, uh, with Iran. So that is definitely uh, a major security threat for Israel. But on the other hand, Israel has a, a strong enough relation uh, with the United States, I think, to uh, to handle uh, Iran. But it has to be uh, handled very very carefully uh, because. Uh, of course, the problem of uh, nuclear deterrence with a country such as Iran is that Iran is a theocracy uh, and uh, is, it is ruled by, uh, uh, by clerics, some of which uh, believe uh, in the tradition of uh, Shia Islam that the 12th Imam would only show up when the Jews are uh, erased from the map of the earth. So that is uh, definitely a big challenge. Another challenge is, of course, uh, the fact that even though, as I explained in my book, Eventually, Israel had the upper hand uh, in its conflict with the Arab world. Uh, at the end of the day, the uh, Palestinian issue is not going anywhere, and Israel will have to make choices. Uh, none of those are easy, uh, but uh, as I said, even though Israel eventually gained the upper hand in the Arab-Israeli conflict, um, the, Israel, the uh, Palestinian issue uh, has not disappeared and will not disappear, and that is also a major challenge for Israel, how to handle this issue uh, which decisions to make in the future. Uh, there's also, of course, the, um, uh, the declining support uh, uh, of uh, the Jewish diaspora in the United States, the fact that there was always, there were always, uh, as I show in my book, strong disagreements between Israel, even before independence, and, uh, and the American uh, Jewish diaspora. But in the recent years, uh, this uh, relationship has become more and more complicated uh, with a weakening support from uh, many American Jews, especially liberal American Jews, uh, which is many of them uh, declaring themselves uh, in recent years or recent months, uh, no, being no longer Zionist at all. So that is definitely uh, also uh, a challenge. Is Israel giving up on uh, American Jewry and only building its political support in America on the evangelists and the Republican Party? Uh, or not, that is a challenge. And finally, I think also, and we've seen it in recent years, uh, a very complicated relation with China. Uh, as the uh, global confrontation between the United States uh, and China uh, is increasing, more and more the U.S. is uh, asking Israel and even sometimes demanding from Israel to seriously cut down on Chinese investments uh, in Israel. Uh, and more and more Israel has to take sides in this global confrontation between the U.S., and China, and that is a challenge because China uh, is more is being more and more supportive of uh, Iran. It signed an agreement with Iran a few months ago, uh, granting China uh, preferential access to the Iranian economy and uh, infrastructures. And so, I think um, if, uh, as the uh, global confrontation between is between the United States and uh, and China intensifies, uh, this also will be a, a big challenge for Israel's uh, foreign policy. You've written an important book, Emmanuel, one that helps clarify the very complicated chessboard of Israeli diplomacy. I hope it'll be widely read. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for hosting me. And thanks to our researcher, Vela Pasikov.